Welcome to The Balance. My name is Dr. Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is sponsored by StudySync. Today, my guest is Dr. Sunita Gandhi, the founder of Dignity Education Vision International. She was awarded a doctorate in physics from Cambridge University, after which she served as an economist at the World Bank, a job she left after 10 years to advance educational equity in India. Dr. Gandhi started a school for the underprivileged at the age of 14. She's traveled to and studied educational systems in 49 countries and won a bid to run Iceland's first two charter schools. She's also also established schools in the Czech Republic and across India, and has pioneered several new innovations in education, most notably the groundbreaking Accelerating Learning for All, or Alpha Pedagogy, and the Global Dream Disruptive Literacy Campaign. I am thrilled to have Dr. Gandhi on the show today. I always begin my podcast by asking my guests to kind of share their journey in education, but you started your career working as a project manager and economist at the World Bank in Washington after earning your PhD in physics at Cambridge. So how did you end up in education? Like what led you to the work you're currently doing? Well, it's kind of a mystery. Even (laughs) I didn't understand what I was up to. Uh, I loved physics as a young uh, student and ended up doing a PhD in it. And that too at uh, top places in the world for physics. So, and with scholarship at Imperial College London and Cambridge University uh, in Cambridge, UK. And uh, as a good physicist would, uh, I shifted continents from Europe to the US and joined Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories as a a physicist Mm -hmm. in Berkeley, California. Oh, wow. And then I began to wonder, is this my real calling? Mm -hmm. I suppose I really wanted to serve the world more directly than through just doing research. So then I applied to the World Bank in Washington, D.C., hoping I might strike it lucky because at that time, frankly, there was no chance in the world. Mm -hmm. But then I worked hard on it and uh, I got up to speed uh, on economics (laughs) and then passed (laughs) the toughest of the competitions, uh, which is the Young Professionals Program, YPP. Uh, I joined the World Bank as an economist and uh, that was, you know, surprising myself as well. But I suppose if you put your mind to it, you can do it. And physicists probably can uh, get into other careers. I don't know if I was an economist wanting to get into physics, how that might look like. Mm -hmm. Uh, But (laughs) but I certainly did find it very uh, amusing when I did become an economist. I had my struggles uh, when I did get there. You know, I had to really uh, get up to speed on so many things. Uh, but uh, then, uh, you know, it's really, really strange because, you know, you kind of think you found your place. And then I was beginning to feel antsy again. And I felt that, you know, I really needed to get into the trenches, work with real people, and uh, that I'd been enough of an economist working on big, you know, policy projects that, you know, we work with the governments to do. And uh, I just wanted to get more into the real life experiences with the people. Mm -hmm. And so after 10 years, wisdom struck again. And I came back to India. And along the way, I was in Iceland. And uh, one of the reasons why I came back to India is because I felt with all the experience that I have gained along the way, including visits to some 49 countries, I felt that I could get more directly involved 
in making a difference to people's lives and use that experience for transforming education for millions of children who can ill afford it. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that, uh, you know, education can be more meaningful and more engaging, more transformative. And that's where my efforts have been since. So I've uh, gone a full circle from education <laughs> where my family began and, you know, they have schools here and uh, sort of gallivanted around the globe, uh, studied physics, became an economist and back to, you know, working in the trenches uh, with the underprivileged. And you've done a bit of research in education. Can you tell us a little bit about your research, kind of what drove your research, what you learned? Is some of the research that you did in these other kind of positions, did they really drive the work you're doing now? Yes, I think research is really important because, you know, we don't know a priori something would work or how well it would work. So I've been, of course, like many, many people across the world, very circumspect about education. Uh, it's highly competitive. 80% of the children do not feel good. Um, they don't aim for higher. They've been told they're not good enough. Been labeled very early on. They give up and say, why try? And so many children give up uh, thinking they are just not going to make it. And I think that's a really a big shame because we, we can do education so much more differently. Mm -hmm. So my first research question was when I was actually working uh, in a laboratory of a school in Iceland, that can all children maximize their learning potential in a classroom? Or is this an oxymoron, just can't happen? Mm -hmm. And uh, what this research led to uh, was the idea that really given the current uh, way in which we uh, organize education with teacher at the head, you know, 40 children in front or even 28 children, like in Iceland, less children. But it's impossible to get every child to become uh, successful in that context. Mm. And the reason is the the underlying principles on which education works are old and archaic. Mm -hmm. You know, children are, are competing with each other. This is not the most becoming for children. They don't feel safe. They don't feel, uh, you know, good in that kind of system. And uh, so why not try competing with yourself or indexing against your own progress. Mm -hmm. And so what would need to be done to make that possible? And this is where my research work uh, became very relevant. Um, and basically, we started to measure um, and provide reports on how you're doing against your own previous score. Mm -hmm. So children need that, you know, to be able to then say, okay, I can go from here to the next level of progress. So like in sports, I mean, the, there is, uh, you, know, you can compare with the best uh, runner, but really you're not doing that on an everyday basis. You're competing with yourself. You're saying, look, I ran the particular circle in, in uh, a kilometer in so many minutes, mm -hmm. and now I can do it in so, so many seconds less. So you're always competing with yourself. And I think that's how education should be. You're competing with yourself. Your gauge is not somebody else. And I think this is a major fundamental shift in the way we think about education. Uh, and when we measure progress against self, there's more progress. Mm -hmm. So this this research was uh, you know, very significant. Uh, it was picked up. Uh, I did more work on it in India and then the UK. And then it was picked up by a professor at Institute of Education, London University. And Professor Gwyneth Hughes published a book called Ipsitive Assessment and Personal Learning Gain. Mm -hmm. And in that, uh, one of the chapters was on this particular uh, idea of competing with self and how this can maximize learning in, in classrooms. Mm -hmm. So, but learning is not just about, uh, you know, uh, education is not just about learning. Uh, it, it is a lot more. And uh, how do you engage the child as a whole? Mm -hmm. um, 
as an individual who is capable in so many different ways. I mean, every child can create a good family, can can uh, run their businesses, can uh, create income for their family, fend for their family. They can be useful members of the community they're living in and of the world. So why not look at them in that perspective that they're already very successful as human beings? And I think a lot of educators talk about that. But then how do you do it in the context of a school that mm-hmm. is so um, set in the old morals mm-hmm. uh, that that has been subject to my research. So basically, when they do these different things, and we can discuss those as well, I think children feel better about their own selves. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's less stress. And there's a greater level of intrinsic motivation. I can, you know, I really can do this. Uh, give me enough time, I can do that. Or let me work with somebody else. And I know I can solve it. And we don't give them that time. We, we are too much in a rush and for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Uh, pushing syllabus and so forth. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I love the idea of students really measuring their own progress against their themselves. And one of the things that is, I'm thinking of as you're talking is just how rarely, at least here in the States, students actually have access to informal data about their progress. So often they're asked to complete a sequence of learning activities or move through a unit of study. And really the only data that they're given about their progress occurs at the end of that cycle of learning or that unit. And so there aren't those kind of opportunities that are consistent for them to be looking at their work, looking at their data and understanding, I am making progress. I see my progress in this way, in this data or in this work that I'm kind of thinking about critically and maybe self-assessing. And I think that's a really that's a really powerful way, like you said, to motivate them to continue moving forward. Right. And uh, in addition to that, I think one of the things that I'm discovering now through uh, some new research, that when children are working in pairs or when they're working in groups, we don't need to be the gauge as a teacher. Uh, They are themselves the gauge. Mm -hmm. And when they are engaged in learning and there's an explosion of learning, at that time, a measuring of learning becomes irrelevant. Mm. So there's been way too much emphasis on measurement of learning and teaching at the right level or understanding the level of the child. It's like trying to measure something that's moving all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> A child's reality is constantly moving. And, you know, today they don't know something and within a split of a second, they know it. So, you know, let them let them just absorb in le- the, themselves in learning without any kind of judgments and and all kinds of measurements. Mm. I think we have to get away from these measurements. Yeah, it sounds like also because one of the things that I think is so important is uh, too often I think the responsibility for thinking about learning falls on the teacher exclusively. Where what I would love to see educators focus on is how do we help students develop those metacognitive skills so that they can start really thinking about their learning. And it doesn't always have to be some kind of a external measure of like how they're doing. They're really able to be thinking in very intentional ways about what they see in their work that kind of reflects their progress. Right. So metacognition has shown to be very powerful. a way to go forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, the context in which metacognition takes place has uh, also to be perhaps considered. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, you're putting children, giving them a lot of nice things to do. And even like, you know, we're working with, let's say, collaborative groups and uh, collaborative environments and so forth. But the problem is that the system is highly competitive. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, in the end, what matters is how you perform on uh, some uh, written tests or certain other kinds of tests, and they determine your future. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, maybe the measuring instrument is wrong and faulty. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the the whole environment in which the children are put, the pressure cooker conditions in which they, they have to work to prove themselves. I think that's where, you know, we need to consider deeper reforms. So, I mean, there are a lot of great ideas like, you know, we do believe collaborative learning is the way forward. We believe metacognition is very important, self-reflection and reflective practices. But uh, when they're put in the context of competition mm. and in a context where you're sort of like not uh, measured against yourself, you're measured against somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we need to really, you know, change things so dramatically. It's like an underlying ethic from the 19th century uh, that is so deep-rooted uh, that we need to completely do away with. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that that talks about, you know, report cards. For example, the kind of uh, report cards we make are very old and archaic. They, they um, you know, uh, though you don't intend to compare them with others, uh, they invariably do because mm -hmm. ultimately it's a sorting of some sort or the other. And in the minds of the children also, they know they're being sorted. So uh, I'd say the culture and the the context and the uh, underlying principles and the reporting all have to change all at once. Uh, we really have to start to believe in human potential that they're capable of everything. And and yes, yes, of course, I do agree. You know, I made it to universities. I managed to get scholarships and all that. So I know there's competition out there, but I never ever worked for competition. I think lots of people who, who succeed probably. Uh, don't do it for the competition. There are just a handful of them, but they're under extreme stress. Uh, when you're left free, I think you learn more mm -hmm. and uh, you succeed more. So uh, it's an assumption. I mean, I think we need longitudinal study on that as well, more research. Uh, but at least my research has shown that when the teachers talk a different language, uh, when they talk language of um, that you're capable, that I see you as capable, I, I know that you'll make it. I know that you know, this is just a process away. You can scaffold uh, this, you know, in a different way and there you'll have it. You'll take a little longer, but you'll get it. You know, I think those languages are not spoken. Uh, we are too much in a rush. Uh, we are, uh, you know, pushing often a syllabus mm -hmm. um, <laughs> in front of the kids. And I think they are feeling pressured by that syllabus. Um, so how do you meander through all that? And this has been really on my mind a lot. Because, you know, in India also there's huge amounts of pressure on the children to go succeed and do well. And everybody seems to be working to that one goal. Mm -hmm. uh, and we want those kids to succeed because that otherwise will affect their futures. So lately, uh, some of the research that I have done has been very um, meaningful for me. Here, I'm calling it Alpha, by the way, which uh, stands for Accelerating mm -hmm. Learning for All. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, <laughs> here there's a very different kind of uh, setup. Uh, we are finding that in this new setup, so the outcome is that the children are accelerating their learning. They're finding it more joyful to be in this space. And guess what? The speed of learning has gone has shot up. Like what you would do in a year, they're doing in three months. Wow. And they're doing it joyfully and they're doing it, you know, uh, doing it uh, better with deeper understanding. And so how is that possible? And this really, you know, has come after years of mulling over things, working in classrooms in different countries. And here in India, you know, I'm also working with the underprivileged children in the slums and the villages. And I think human potential is the same. Human quest is the same. Uh, 
it's how you organize that for learning mm-hmm. and, and for greater gain. So, you know, for example, we talk about 21st century skills and care. We want the children to have the capacity to collaborate, collaboration, uh, communication, uh, creativity, critical thinking, mm-hmm. character, and citizenship. The six C's of 21st century's education. And everybody's talking about it world over that this is what the children need. But, you know, it's like we want to measure volume, but our only measuring instrument is a ruler. <laughs> so at best, we're going to guess estimate the volume, mm-hmm. right? So we are kind of hitting and missing in this education. And you want collaboration, but your whole school is designed around competition. You're not going to get it just because you see children in, in groups or because you do certain activities in groups. These are not enough. What we need is to make that the modus operandi. So one of the things that we have uh, tried is the idea of peer work, but peer work in the context of two settings. One is paired learning. Mm-hmm. So here we have uh, children, you know, the entire class is sitting in pairs. We've told the teachers, your job is, guess what, not to teach. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. you're not going to teach and you're not going to tell, you're not going to explain and you're not going to say repeat after me. Okay. So what, what does the teacher do? You know, what are her new roles? And we are also saying you're not going to facilitate. Because once you facilitate, you're also helping them. And they, they know you're there to help them. Uh, so what we've done lately is given the subject material, like textbook or whatever material we have, to the children, and we've made for little ones, what we call alpha modules. And these are like, you know, self-study modules, if you like, mm-hmm. where the material is presented in a way the children can do hands-on learning on their own. They can create their own resources. They can find the resources. Uh, they can work in pairs. And that is the key thing that's really working so beautifully. So if I, as a teacher, want to teach uh, 40 children or 20 children in a classroom, uh, mostly it is through verbalization. Even if I'm telling them, go get, you know, ice cream sticks and, you know, put so many ice cream sticks in this place and do that and the other. The, the, at the end of the day, I am instructing and they are doing. Mm-hmm. What we are saying is let the children work in pairs and teach each other. Mm-hmm. So they take the subject matter and they, they interpret it for themselves. As long as they can read this, the older children, for littler ones, we've done this alpha modules, which are different, visual and uh, different. So as long as they can read, they can read what's on the module or what's in their textbook and they can explain to each other. They can take turns to explain to each other. And we know that when children, uh, teach each other, they learn the most. Mm -hmm. And uh, while they are interpreting for each other, they also make like summarization uh, of notes. They make a mind map or they make a model or they make a chart or they make a PPT. They make a model of, uh, you know, any sort like science model or whatever. And that model they make together. Mm -hmm. Then they go to other children. And now this is a jigsaw kind of group. Mm -hmm. They go there and they teach what they have made to the other children who have made something else as well. So between them, they're sharing learning. So the, let's say there's a, a chapter divided into five parts and each group is work, working on one part of it. Mm-hmm. And they perfect that one part. They become really good at it. And they work in pairs in that part. Let's say three pairs of children are working on the same part. Mm-hmm. And then these three pairs form three different groups across the horizontal uh, of the class and they go and share what they've made. And then they also, one more thing they do, which is really fascinating, is that these kids ask, questions uh, and they make questions for each other and this is really quite an incredible skill that children need to have they need to be able to frame questions frame good questions ask each other those questions so they make them on chits of paper 
And so I'll make 10 for, for you and you make 10 for me on a particular small module that says, I understand ordinal and cardinal numbers, or I understand the calendar, or I understand um, LCM, mm-hmm. least common multiple, whatever it might be, that little piece of work that I need to understand, you and I will co-create that learning. And we will make questions for each other on jits of paper. I'll make 10, you'll make 10. Uh, we'll put them on the table. We'll ask each other or we'll pick jits and answer each other's questions. And then we'll take these questions to the group we're going to teach. And then after teaching, we ask them the same questions. So it's like, uh, I mean, I did not expect this, honestly, A, that uh, this will work ever so well, uh, B, that the teachers will embrace it and that they will be okay about not teaching. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that was really, really quite powerful uh, to see that. In fact, uh, what was really surprising for me was that the teachers of senior classes, uh, grades uh, 10 and 12, which are really like sacrosanct, these are the years for board examinations and you just can't mess up. Mm-hmm. And these teachers are very protective. You can't tell them a new thing to do because they'll say, look, I mean, this is going to spoil our results. They're yeah. at least open to change. And so when we introduced th- this thought process that let's do this process-led transformation of our classes, let the children learn by themselves, the teachers were amazed to see how much learning was taking place mm-hmm. in in far shorter time frames. And now we're, we're banking on it. We've got, I think I've got a lot of evidence, which I'm happy to share, uh, you know, one can see it, that even five-year-olds are reading newspapers. Um, six-year-olds are reading English newspapers as well as Hindi. Wow. Uh, so all that's happening and it's real. So I am a scientist. I'm a researcher. I, you know, don't believe in anything unless I see it. <laughs> and I and I want people to really look into it because I think it's working. And uh, that that's how I got you, Catelyn, because <laughs> somebody came to India and saw this work mm-hmm. and is a mutual friend of ours, mm-hmm. John Karipo. Yeah, I had him on a, an episode very, very early on. And John's a, John's a great guy. So I'm thrilled he connected us. I know for folks listening, so I can imagine the scene you're describing where you have students paired and you've given them materials, whether they are visual in nature for young learners who might not have strong reading skills, or maybe there is a pretty robust reading component for students who are older. I'm sure the teachers in the States, at least listening to this, have two questions. So I'm going to ask them. The first is, in this scene where students are kind of self-pacing through the process of meaning making in pairs, what is what is the teacher doing? Like, how are they using that time um, to maximize their impact in the classroom? Fantastic question, Catherine. Of course, that is one of the things I was wondering too. That what would they do if they, you know, children are just learning by themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, so, firstly, they need to be very good at motivating. Uh, all children. And that means uh, they are um, going around the class saying, great, well done to every child. And they are using what we might call the language of encouragement, which is different and more powerful than language of praise mm-hmm. or reprimand. Of course, we don't use reprimand anymore, but there's a language of praise or the silent language of affirmation of the other child, where you're saying, this is good. I see you've just made so much progress. So I see this is like looking so great, you know, how did you do it? Asking them questions. So that's one thing, but you might be disturbing them also because they're really highly absorbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need to be good at pairing children. And we say you you must not do conscious pairing. 
like a child who's ahead of the class and those who are struggling matching them up to work together mm-hmm. so totally you know like uh, a transparent uh, process of pairing that's very very important teacher needs to know teacher needs to be a very good enabler so creating the resources the materials creating the environment the warm and caring environment all those go to the teacher now the question is you know what does she do physically uh, at that time when the children are working i think she's a, she's meant to be an observer mm. because when teachers become observers they become very good teachers mm-hmm. uh, they they become like scientists who have their laboratory in front of them and they see where the problems are and they make mental notes and written notes and they figure out a way then when after this learning has happened to come in and and uh, you know negotiate certain things or teach extra things or whatever mm-hmm. uh, one of the things they need to teach children is how to make good quality questions for example mm-hmm. so and the role of the enabler would be to enable them to learn by itself mm-hmm. and uh, how all that they need to do in order to enable the children to give them the resources but not just the resources the thinking mm-hmm. uh, the the kind of thinking that comes with enabling somebody you know so if if you want to build a house i've never built house and uh, i ask a teacher help me build a house she says oh, it's too difficult for you mm-hmm. right you can't do it uh, but a good teacher will help you go through step by scaffold that learning from ground zero here's what you do first here's what you do second but instead of telling them that you'll put this in 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 a way that it's present for them so that's preparing the environment mm-hmm. so they know okay this these are the you know five steps i can take rather than tell them let them explore let them come up with it let them research it on the net let them figure out uh, between each other and you know simply drawing upon that a power of thought so today i don't know it but tomorrow magically i know it because i've been thinking about it because my diffuse thinking time i've been mulling over it um it's it's a problem that's not going away from my head i'm thinking about it mm-hmm. you know if uh, if for example um chimpanzees can have the power of thought mm-hmm. then why can't human beings you know that chimpanzee in a cage sees the bananas kind get to them with the the two rods two both, both of them are very short mm-hmm. and can't reach the bananas and uh, then sits down all disappointed and suddenly <laughs> thought comes oh why don't i put the two sticks together and then he reaches the bananas so there is a power of thought in us and we can learn through that there's power of imagination there's power of the intellect there's so many inner resources that we've got that we don't draw upon and that we don't build Yes, yeah. I agree. I think there's there is just value in allowing students to sit with questions and problems and their ideas and allowing them to take shape. And I think your comment earlier about the rush, the rush through, you know, getting through content, keeping up with a syllabus or a pacing guide that it often robs the student of that time to really engage that powerful thinking. Um, I do know the second question most teachers are probably asking is because when I talk about having kids do things like this, the question I get a lot is, well, I don't, there's a lot of skepticism of like, I don't think kids will do that. Are they going to get a grade for that work? Like, how are we measuring that work? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. you know, that's, that's the question yeah. I often hear. It's like, there's this assumption that kids, if there isn't a grade, there isn't something extrinsic out there that the kids won't do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, basically, they have to research it again, because <laughs> what we are finding is the kids are absolutely loving this. Uh, they are, I mean, the parents are reporting at home. They're just buzzing mm. with activities, with things to do. They have so much to do. 
that they never had before. Giving them home assignments is totally unnecessary anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, the kids are themselves thinking of things they need to do for the next day. For example, if I have to present tomorrow to my jigsaw group, mm -hmm. a lesson I've learned today with my peer, I will work on it, really. Nobody needs to tell me I need to work on it. There's a different psychology that emerges, and that psychology is very precious psychology, uh, you know, and that allows us to aim for perfection, aim for uh, doing things better, and belief in ourselves that we can, and we will. And I think those are all the necessary things that are missing in education. We're too much, not just in a rush, we're too much in the old mold mm -hmm. of thinking. And to get out of it, we have to just unleash this new process, try out alpha, accelerating learning for all. And really, it's working. Uh, just try it out. There are, there are schools now in the US who are trying this out, both in terms of method and also the modules and the process. So we have a school in California that at the moment is working with children who've had reading difficulty using the alpha modules as we speak. And so you established Iceland's first two charter schools and at least one experimental school in the Czech Republic and one in India or multiple maybe in India. I would love for you to tell us about this work because the things you're saying are so obviously different from the traditional approach, but clearly the research is indicating that students are responding so well. So first, what was it like to work in Iceland creating charter schools? Like what gap or need did you see See these schools kind of addressing or filling in Iceland? Okay, so I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable that I actually ended up in Iceland in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> and don't ask me how, how, but I won the bid to run Iceland's first two charter schools. And that was like, wow, right, as well for me. And uh, when I got them, this wonderful person called Stain Gudna Daughter, who had invited me to, to bid, mm -hmm. um, she, she became a very good uh, resource person there. And I said to her, look, I've now set up the school. You've got everything you need. May I go back to India? And she <laughs> said, no, 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 stay back here a little longer. So I started to do a lot of research work. I'm a scientist, so I need my laboratory. And I had this perfect laboratory. And uh, basically, uh, the question that I had set at the time was that, can every child excel? You know, can every child excel? Mm -hmm. uh, and the answer was a resounding yes, but we'd have to change that principle of competition with others to competition with self. That, that would mean new report cards. That would mean a new language in the classroom, the way we relate to each other, so many other things. And I think, you know, uh, that the uh, results started to come very early on uh, when, for example, the grade one teacher, Mar uh, Martha Yon's daughter, and she came to me and said, all my class is getting 95% and above. And this is just the beginning of the year. So what do I do rest of the year? So I said, well, it's a problem for me as well. Let's go sit down and all of us explore. Mm -hmm. So we had a nice uh, staff meeting on this. But really learning does explode when you, when you unleash that process in which children are responsible for their learning. Uh, so it start, started there in some measure. And along the way, then I, of course, uh, had this school in the Czech Republic in Prague that is called Global Concepts International School in Praha. So that was a laboratory. I was working there mostly with the pre-primary children. And uh, then uh, in India, I, uh, when I got back to India, I decided to start a school for my children, my two children. Mm -hmm. And that also became an experimental ground because I didn't want them to suffer. And I wanted them to have an outstanding education. And uh, here I was doing a lot of experimental work in terms of also mixing up the socioeconomic backgrounds of children. Mm -hmm. So you could consider me like by this point uh, to be privileged, um, though I didn't, I wasn't always privileged, grew up to a very poor family uh, early on. But uh, the fact is that I had a lot of choices. 
And these kids of mine, I wanted them to to study alongside the poorest of the poor. Mm-hmm. And uh, both of these kids have turned out so outstanding. My daughter has just completed her master's in education from Harvard this year. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, these kids became outstanding. And I think that is because, and not just them, lots of children who've done really well, uh, because we are not just educating the mind, we're also educating the heart. Mm-hmm. And this is a different equation altogether. You know, like, how do you, how do you get people to be humble about who they are and yet know that they are capable of almost anything and everything? So that joyful process led transformation uh, where you're making certain other things central. For example, collaboration is more central. Communication, critical thinking, creativity, character. These are so much more important than just doing A in a classroom. But but I know in India and elsewhere, everybody's looking at the grade. Mm-hmm. So then are we seeing results on that front? And absolutely, yes. I mean, these kids are doing so well academically as well. They're rocking the charts. So many more are going overseas from that experimental school in Lucknow. And, and we are now getting a lot of um, visitors, um, <laughs> not just John, <laughs> but we're getting a lot of visitors from all over the place, uh, including the policymakers here in India, because something different is happening here. And, and really, we're doing nothing. We're just leaving the children. We're giving them a structure. We're giving them an environment. We're giving them an opportunity to learn. Uh, we are very focused on the learning outcomes, if you like. Mm-hmm. but uh, we're not measuring it in the old way. And and there is acceleration of learning. So, for example, if I want to measure, if you know your LCM or HCF, you know, I'll, I'll do a little test to know that. What if these kids already know LCM, HCF and, and much more than that? What they would need to know by grade six, they know by grade four. Mm-hmm. You know, so measurement loses relevance in that sense. And I think a good teacher will know when my children are ready or they're much more than ready. And to direct their energies then to other things rather than just academics. Because if they finish the coursework in a year, a year's coursework in three months, uh, they've got nine months or seven months or eight months more to do something with. And what would that be? So uh, we are still mulling over these issues. I'm not saying we've got to the end. I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And uh, but But the directions we are choosing seem to be working. And uh, the research work is showing very, very promising results. I mean, honestly, you can have these five years read a newspaper. It shows kids are capable. Mm-hmm. We're just stymieing them. We're just lowering their potential. We're, we are uh, giving them these books. Actually, this is another very interesting point that I discovered along the way, that the books are repetitive mm-hmm. for no reason at all. You know, if you teach well the first time or they learn well the first time, there's no need to repeat so much. And there's so much of redundancy across the grades. And that's in the publishers, thankfully, who probably have made this, um, it looks like that they are the ones who've probably, you know, made fatter and fatter books, uh, while ex- the the essence of what they need to learn uh, has not been measured or not been not been ensured early enough. Mm-hmm. So there, it like demands that repeat because kids haven't actually learned it in a very deep way where they're going to hang on to that learning. Is what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So I'm curious, obviously, these experimental schools and then the charter schools in Iceland had a are taking a different approach. They're experimenting with all kinds of new strategies. How do you train teachers to be successful in those schools where I imagine most of them went through a training program that was preparing them for a very different kind of reality? But when you ask them to go into a classroom and really 
support kind of students in learning almost on their own. What does that training look like? How do you prepare teachers to be successful in that environment or to successfully support students in that type of an environment? Right. This is a lot of unlearning, I would say. Mm -hmm. Unlearning old ways of treating children, old ways of talking to them, um, the non-verbal languages as as well, uh, the expectations, the old expectations. I think a lot of it is unlearning those things. It's like saying, okay, you know, let's just observe. Let's just be. Mm. Let's just, you know, see if this works. And I think uh, uh, we have to transform our belief system because if we believe that children cannot learn any other way than the way we have been uh, doing, we're already, you know, very stuck on the old. Mm -hmm. Um, I had these wonderful people from the UK who had come to India and uh, they, you know, this wonderful principal, she held my hand, she said, Sunita, but you've got to teach them. How will they learn if you don't teach them? <laughs> so I said, well, welcome to my classroom. <laughs> Have a look. <laughs> Are they learning? Are they not learning? And so there's a lot of, I think, change of belief, uh, which will not happen just by talking to the teachers. Right. Uh, it'll happen if they allow a new reality to exist, at least for a time, we take a breather from the old. I say, look, I mean, it might be worth for a week. I know we're in a rush. We even can't afford that week because we must finish that syllabus or that that piece of work. But let them take a breather and try this out. Try this out with, in all faith and all honesty. And their belief systems will begin to budge and change. The teacher's expertise need to be of a different sort. For example, they need to know how to help children scaffold learning, uh, how to present learning in a manner that they can learn by themselves. Mm -hmm. Because often we present uh, information, even in the textbooks, they are written for the teachers, not for the children. Mm -hmm. And teachers can interpret, understand, and then they explain to the children. Well, if it's in a textbook, um, obviously, if the children can read, they can understand by themselves but they often are coded for the teacher. They're written by people who are 40 plus and uh, they just don't interpret things in the same way. Kids are so much better at teaching each other. They're so much better at explaining things to each other. And imagine if you're not the only teacher, uh, you know, there, there are 20 teachers mm-hmm. uh, or 20 times two teachers, 40 teachers in your classroom. Uh, so this is definitely a new skill and they will not understand it that we found. They will not understand it just by talking to them in the classroom. So one of the things we have, uh, two things we have done. One, that we have started to do training in the same setting as we teach in our classrooms or the process that we unfold in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So for example, we'll pair up all the teachers. Instead of giving them grade level three material, uh, which, you know, for a grade three teacher, we'll give them like grade 10 material. So it's horrendously difficult for them. Mm -hmm. And then we ask them to scaffold that for themselves, you know, to figure it out by themselves. And, you know, it is so empowering where the teachers can do it. They feel like, you know, they are so capable. They feel so good about themselves. And once they realize this is what they feel, how the children must be feeling when mm-hmm. they discover the facts for themselves. The moment you've told them something, the moment you've explained it, them, uh, explained it to them, you have taken all the joy out of learning. You've taken all the, yeah. all the discovery out of learning. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit. You currently serve as the founder and CEO of a number of organizations, the Council for Global Education, Education Society of Iceland, and Education Vision International in India. So clearly, you're at the top of some organizations trying to create some pretty significant change in education. What have been some of your big takeaways or maybe some of the big lessons you've learned trying to lead change in the education space? 
Okay, I think that this is a very difficult question, by the way. Of course, setting up an organization <laughs> is not not that difficult. You know, I started Devi Devi Sansan Dignity Education Vision International way back out of guilt feeling when I was living in the U.S. and thinking, "Gosh, I'm not helping the the poor in my uh, you know country." Mm-hmm. So I started uh, this on one of the visits. So that had its own purpose, and now you know I'm really using that organization to venture across the country and into the world uh, with the work for the underprivileged children. So it has become very meaningfully uh, important to me, this organization. Mm-hmm. The Council for Global Education came out of my travels across the world. I've uh, been privileged and uh, fortunate to travel to 49 countries and in most of them study their education systems. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, every time I'd venture out, you know, there'd be a lot of lull time, thinking time on the planes and all that. And uh, really, I was juxtaposing all my thinking against the setting the schools I knew. My family runs school here in Lucknow, which is the world's largest school. It has 58,000 children this year. Wow. Uh, so it's in the Guinness Book of Records as the largest school in the world. So that was, you know, like I was thinking, you know, 40 children, 50 children in a classroom, you know, 125 children in a classroom in uh, in um, Africa. And most of the places I visited, pretty, pretty bizarre situation education not leading to meaningful engagement of the youth you know in fact we're probably lowering their skills uh their thinking and uh, in india they'd stand on street corners and blame the government for not having a job after the education rather than being useful in the farms you know there was just so many so many things going through my mind when i was going across these countries and uh, that you know led to the formation of council for global education uh, with my colleague uh, from the world bank robert saunders and um, here we came up with a framework of a new education. We call it the four building blocks, which we still feel are the most defining four building blocks of an education today. And they create a more broader and bolder education that we need today. So these are universal values that every child needs to have a deep-rooted sense of values, mm-hmm. whether they come from a spiritual source or otherwise, that's important. Second is global understanding that we are part of one human family. And that's such an important realization. The third is excellence in all things. Uh, That is, uh, whatever we do, we do the best of our ability. And that sentiment that I'm doing this for the love of it or for making it as well as I can, I think that sentiment needs to be in education. We should not be in a rush like we are. You know, that's really taking away from excellence. Mm -hmm. Excellence also means being able to visualize the Mahatma Gandhi, the Abraham Lincoln, uh, the Thomas Edison in every child as we visualize so we leave. So that expectation comes from this four, uh, third building block of excellence in all things. And uh, the fourth one is service to humanity. And that is by far the most important one, because all the learning should be directed in a way that it leads to service. Whether we are a teacher, whether we work in a particular profession or job, doesn't matter. Whatever we do, we do in a spirit of service and to make this world a better place. And I think that gives meaning to the children and to the education mm-hmm. and purpose to the education. So those are the four fundamental building blocks that we promote through the Council for Global Education Worldwide. And uh, so that's, you know, all necessary. But where I'm at today is that, you know, we need a paradigm shift in education, uh, that incremental change is not enough. So, you know, we have this old landline phone. Mm-hmm. And we keep fixing it, you know, like, uh, okay, let's add a ta- dash of constructivism. Let's add a dash of inquiry or um, so many other great ideas, personalized learning, even the great ideas we believe in, like collaboration. But that is the old landline phone. And what we need is a transformative new technology in education, the equivalent of maybe a smartphone, 
a paradigm shift. Uh, the guiding principles, the design behind it, uh, the thinking behind it are all very different. The guiding principles are all very different. The underlying principles on which uh, these are made are very, very different. And I think that's what we need in education today. We need There's a desperate need for a paradigm shift in our thinking and in our classrooms. Incremental change, definitely not. And we can't just keep saying, oh, let's improve it year on year. It's mm -hmm. not going to happen. It has to be dramatic change right now. Yeah, I definitely think we're at this. It feels from my perspective that we are at this crisis point in education, um, both in terms of the teacher experience, but also the student experience. So I agree there. I wish there was there was more focus on treating classrooms like laboratories and figuring out better ways of doing this work to engage students. Um, and I know you've you're really focused on literacy right now, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your current project called the Golden Dream and kind of what the focus of this work is? You know, a lot of lot of hard soul searching when I came back to India, and I wanted to come back and serve the underprivileged children. So my both, uh, both my children are adopted mm. and they're from the slums. So I feel that every child has humongous potential. Now, um, how to bring out their potential, how to give them a break, those who deserve it the most. That's the focus of my work at the moment. 90% of my time goes into this and some research around this. So basically, I've come up with a breakaway methodology and captured inside what I call the Global Dream Toolkit. And uh, there's a global dream, uh, disruptive literacy movement, which is now spreading all over the world. Today, I had a meeting with uh, all Africa students union uh, and their members across Africa. We are working in, in Latin America. We are beginning to work in many parts of the world for the children who are COVID affected mm -hmm. because of school closures. 70% of 10-year-olds, uh, UNICEF reports, of 10-year-olds are unable to read after the COVID. Uh, mm -hmm. they, it was 53% before that. 70%. Can you believe it? Mm. So it's still not a pretty picture before that. Um, how come half of the world's 10-year-olds can't read when it's actually so simple and so easy? They know their language. They just need to know the alphabet. And how come it takes them three years, five years in school, and still majority of them cannot read? So that's what I'm fighting. That's why I'm working towards. And I'm engaging all stakeholders, especially government-run schools. I'm working with them and getting a lot of breakthroughs right now. I've been working with uh, young volunteers like uh, in Africa and also in India, mm -hmm. uh, where they are adopting children and uh, adults who are illiterate, teaching them using this Global Dream Toolkit. And we're sharing research, um, you know, how it's working, collecting data around it. I'm publishing a book. It's coming out in June this year, next month, by Bloomsbury India. And uh, it's called Disruptive Literacy, a roadmap for urgent global action. And then I've been publishing also in UK, as I mentioned earlier, and in the peer review journals uh, recently in Glasgow University, as well as in India, Economic and Political Weekly of India. So basically, you know, I think at the heart of it is something that works. Mm -hmm. And if it didn't work, just an idea would not be enough. But because it's working, people are, are attracted to it. We're saying 90 day literacy. Oh, wow. And Nobody's ever heard of that. <laughs> so, right. So this is where I'm at today. That's exciting. I'll make sure to have the link to the book in the show notes for anybody who's curious and wants to explore that more. Um, so I want to kind of bring this, obviously, my podcast is called The Balance, and you have this really interesting vantage point because you've just worked all over the world. When you think about imbalances in education, 
what what concerns you the most or what do you think is most alarming or concerning? Um, what changes do you think need to happen specifically? And we've touched a little bit on this, but to really prepare students for an increasingly global world, a world in which they're going to have to be able to learn confidently after they leave classrooms in order to kind of navigate the ever-changing landscape of their lives. Right. Um, as in my own life, I've lived on so many continents and had to interact with people from 49 countries at a minimum, mm -hmm. uh, many more when I met them in Washington or other places. So I think that children need to view the world differently. And there's no other way to get them to do that except through experiencing it. Uh, we are exploring constantly opportunities. For example, there's a group in Mexico called High Networking, and they are putting children networking with each other across the globe to solve global problems. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they need to experience being with each other. And that begins in a classroom, whether you're in a village and you don't see the world quite readily at your doorstep. But if they work with each other, uh, there itself, there are so many lessons to be learned. It's an everyday character building exercise. You know, somebody took my pencil away and I'm fighting about it or whatever. You're resolving conflicts. You're, you're working things out. You're working with each other every single day in a classroom. Mm -hmm. And we are depriving children of that. So if we were to do that, we'd also create a more humane world uh, because we know how to live with each other, live with our differences. We see so many problems from Littleton, Colorado, to um, what happened in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia. You know, it was all differences. Mm -hmm. So if we, we see differences as a strength and we know how to work and live with those differences, not just that, we celebrate differences. I think that can only happen if we change our classrooms and have a wider purpose to that classroom and not just related to learning. And so the, the sitting arrangements are not enough, but doing projects together every single day, working with each other, sorting out the difficulties they come, becoming resourceful, finding your own resources. I think these are the real skills that the children need to learn today. And they're not going to be possible if it's going to be a teacher-led classroom. Yeah. For sure. And that teacher-led approach creates, in my opinion, a lot of the imbalances that I worry about in education. Whereas if we really believed that students were capable of this work, of meaning-making, of discovery, I think allowing them to engage in that process and allowing them to drive their experience together as part of a learning community would, for me, address a lot of the imbalances that I think about. Absolutely. That's so perfectly said. Very, very true. Yeah, we're all thinking the same. We just have to be bold enough to go try it out. Because, you know, I mean, I've seen teachers being so afraid to try out something new because it's just in case it fails. Mm -hmm. And what if the superintendent comes in and tells me off? Mm -hmm. And this is not according to the guidelines given. We are so constrained. It's not just our thought process by the system. Mm -hmm. The systems have to budge as well. So really, imbalances are there in education. And they're created by the system of education, which is old, old and archaic. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, um, you know, we're trying to build a round building and the foundation is all square. <laughs> so the goals are so not connected. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's There are things teachers can do in their spaces to, I think, shift practice and really honor students' ability and allow them to make meaning. But there is so much systematically, as you're saying, that makes it hard for teachers to be really creative and take risks and depart from this kind of system, for sure. 
So I always end the show by asking my guests to share any tips they have for creating or maintaining kind of a healthy-ish work-life balance. And it sounds like you do a ton. So are there any tips or routines or strategies that you have found useful in creating and maintaining balance in your own life that you can share with folks listening? Okay, I'm not going to be the best guide, I must confess. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason is I'm, uh, you know, my whole family, not just me. I mean, on Christmas Eve, we'll be discussing our problems of the world. (laughs) And we are crazy. But basically what I feel is uh, that one of the principles that I think we've learned is use every minute uh, for social good. So we do take breaks. There are family times, your dinners together. We do a lot of um, fun times once in a while. Like, for example, I take my children. I've been to exotic places with them in India and beyond. And there have been times I've been playing board games with them or with others. And my favorite is Mastermind. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it <laughs> engaging. And the occasional Sudoku here and there. Um, but I feel that, you know, instead of lounging myself in front of a television, which I do once in a while, I do watch a Netflix show here and there. I watched the Unabomber, for example. I found it fascinating. Mm. <laughs> but, um, and I do watch, you know, lighthearted things like Anne with an E and uh, mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of uh, um, other shows that my children like watching. So one day at a time, and God knows so many come to my mind. But the fact is that I do spend most of my time working. Mm. Sometimes my children say, Mom, it's too much. <laughs> and I have to take stock. And I have to say, okay, fine. <laughs> Let's take a break. But generally speaking, I feel that Life is too short and we should use it for, for good. And if you're enjoying our work, then it's, it's a pleasurable activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't sound like work. It doesn't feel like work. And you feel relaxed when you've done a piece of work. You feel good. So I'm not the best guy. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you're encouraging. Like if you're passionate, you find something you're passionate about, then it, it almost helps to create balance because work doesn't even really feel like work sometimes. Right. You make yourself really comfortable. Like, for example, I work from home. I don't have to go out. And this is before the COVID. It's not during the COVID that I got used to it. And I, I you know, I sort of follow uh, Winston Churchill. Uh, he said that if you can lie down uh, and do your work, then why stand up and do it or sit down and do it? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I think that's that's correct. So make yourself very comfortable. Uh, I have all the things I need, my AC, my, you know, computer, my whatever I need. I've got my, uh, you know, uh, Starbucks here right now. So the <laughs> point is that, I think you should make yourself comfortable, have a nice time, get up when you need to, um, get up every 20 minutes. I do balance it with exercise. Every morning I do yoga and every evening recently I've engaged a physical trainer. Mm. So I do heavy duty, you know, other things. <laughs> so these keep me uh, more engaged. I sleep so that I can work more the next day. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was fascinating hearing about your work and I'm so glad we were able to connect given the intense difference between our time zones. <laughs> yes, truly. <laughs> Stay and night, your morning or night. Yes, I know. I know. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I appreciate it. It's a real pleasure. It's been awesome. Thank you so much, Kathleen, yeah. for having me on this show. Of course. Thank you so much. two really big ideas kind of resonating for me after this conversation. And the first is around this idea that we in education have to believe kids are capable. They are capable of learning 
all on their own. Their brains are wired to learn. And in some respects, maybe what we need to do is to kind of get out of their way and allow them to develop both the skills and the confidence to make meaning with their peers as part of a learning community and to stop assuming that the only way students can learn is when teachers talk at them or transfer information or explain something. I love the moment in this episode where Sunita points out that we really are robbing students of that opportunity to discover on their own. And when kids work together to discover and make meaning, that is a hard process. Yet when they come out the other side and they've learned something for themselves, there is so much pride. There's so much excitement and it definitely does a lot to boost their confidence. So I just love that idea. It's something I want to keep in mind and I want educators thinking about. How do we give students those opportunities to discover? The second is really thinking about this idea of progress against oneself. So instead of students feeling like they're competing against maybe the most advanced members of a class, really starting to think about their progress in relation to their own past performance. I think that that would make it possible for students to really develop over time this feeling that they are moving forward, they are developing in their skills. Maybe they're not developing at the same rate or at the same level as somebody else, but that's not actually even what's important. What's important is that every child be making progress. So for me, both of those um, are really important takeaways from this episode. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include engaging supplemental digital inquiry solutions for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more information or follow the link in the show notes. <laughs>